Now, I have the pleasure of introducing to you Flame. I got to hear Flame out in San Diego last year. He is a Grammy-nominated and uh, Spirit Award or Dove Award-winning artist. He's a rapper. He's incredibly um, learned, and he's just put out a book, a fantastic book, which is basically a sort of a memoir, a testimony that's mixed with an enormous amount of, uh, of, of deep theology. He's... Um, he also has his 1517 record out, which I think is extremely cool. If you don't follow him on social media, you should, and you will after we hear from him. So without any further ado, let's hear from Flame. One, two, one, two. How's everybody doing? Let me just set myself up to win here. Man, thank you for the word, my dear brother. So encouraging. Wow. All right. I like to use my iPad. Can I use my iPad with you all? Okay, cool, cool, cool. Ah, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. Thank you for this time. You're so kind to us. Thank you for being present. Uh, thank you for just loving us in Christ. In Jesus' name, be with us as we discuss your word, your good news. Amen. You know, I'm excited to be here for many reasons, but one in particular is because the journey God has taken me on. It's been exciting. It's been funny. It's been highs. It's been lows. But by and large, God has been faithful to keep me based upon his word. So even at this stage in my music career, in my life, I'm excited that God has still preserved that childlike thing in me that faith that he gave me as a gift, and also the desire to share those good things in music. So I just want to give a hat tip to my grandma that I like to tell this story. Um, I remember as a kid, I was always sneaking around the house listening to rap music, but for some reason, I was drawn to the most debased and vile expression of rap music. All rap music is not equal, but there was this gritty part in me that just... I like the worst expression of it. And I remember my grandmother caught me one time and she said, grandson, why are you listening to that kind of music? I said, I don't know, grandmother, it's just good. She said, listen, why don't you study your schoolwork, engage the material, write songs with the content of the material, then when you go to school, you have the answers in your head in the lyrics of your songs. And I said, genius. And Flame was born in that moment. So big hat tip to Frances Jones. She's with the Lord right now. But <laughs> yes. So now we at the River Jordan. John the Baptist baptized Jesus. Then he brought him out the water. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all present. Like how the creation started. Heavens opened up, spirit descended like a dove, then he came down and rested on him. This my son in whom I'm well pleased, the father speaks from heaven, put his blessing on him. This the logos who met the standard of the law with no flaws, he kept the standard, no commandment broke at all. Yet he was tempted on every hand and never choked at all. The text reveals he did fulfill all righteousness in fact. Then here God got this heal and blood got spilled in that sacrificial act. Now he is the promise the Father has made us. 
through prophets and priests to be our mediator. Our baptism basically inaugurated to bring new beginnings, redeeming creation. Now how we access what he earned back then, historic objective for women and men, with no exceptions, he died for our sin. Christ said, by faith, you get baptized in. Make some noise in this room, y'all. Yes. And it's that good news that still enlivens me. And I'm praying that it's doing the same thing in your heart. And I think it's important that we continue to communicate it. Because one of the sensitivities that has been worked into my personality, my personhood over time is this concern for the devout person's conscience. So my message today is something like the old Adam's damage to devout consciences. Now, yes, I love to share the good news with Jesus, of Jesus Christ. I travel a lot, probably maybe 150 dates out of the year, and I engage a lot of regular people on the go, and airport, airplane, the like. And I love to just spark good conversation about life, about art, about culture, music, and then sometimes even the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love watching God pique people's interest with just this ancient message of forgiveness. But then also, I have this sensitivity for those who have moved into the Christian space underneath the grace of God. They've heard the gospel, they've received the good news by faith. But then sometimes we assume that once people are in Christ, that we could just kind of leave them alone. They're good, they're saved already. Let's just go after the non-Christian community. And I say both and, not either or, right? And God is so faithful to save. I think about one person I met, he told me, he said, man, Flame, he said, um, the Lord, he saved me, man. I said, nah, amen, that's what's up. He said, but I remember before I was a Christian, he said, God took me to hell for three days and he left me there. And I was like, I don't know where this is going. Uh, He's like, I kept begging him to just bring me back, but he wouldn't. And I'm like, continue? Like, what do you say after that? I'm like, he said, but then after I returned, I knew that I was a sinner and I had saw what I needed to see and I gave myself to Jesus Christ. I said, amen. I mean, God can take two fish, five loaves. He can make a donkey speak. Who am I to say God can't use a bunch of creative ways to bring people into his kingdom? But there is this thing that happens once you're in. God has been kind and gracious enough to allow you to come in. Even if it's been through a messy means, he still draws us into the faith because of his faithfulness. But once you're inside, as I mentioned, there's this reality that every person experiences. There's this old ruler dwelling within. It's been called the old Adam the sinful nature. There's this reality within us, this confidence within us that assumes we have the power, the intellect, the might, the moral stamina to work ourselves up the ladder to heaven and to flex on God and show him how good and committed we are to good things. And that thing is working itself in the non-Christian and in the Christian. But today we're talking particularly about 
the devout consciences, those who regularly pray to God, those who regularly read their Bibles, they try to resist sin, not perfectly, but trying nonetheless, serving in many stations of vocation, husband, wife, mom, dad, artists, the like. These people are just devout Christians, but there's still this damage that can happen because of the old Adams, that sinful nature, that inner confidence constantly striking and attacking and accusing God of not being good or being God or not being faithful or fair that constantly bombards and attacks our minds. And this is kind of a funny story. I think about one time I was uh, at my local church. I was probably about 17 years old, just really started taking my faith seriously. And I was with one of my homies, right? And we were in church, and they decided this Sunday that we're going to have a testimony service. Anybody ever heard of a testimony service? If you haven't, what it is, it's just a time for random people in the pews to stand up and say what God has been doing for them and how he's been working in their lives. So it's, a, it's kind of a scary moment to just hand a mic to any random person. So one of my homies, this dude, he never really speaks. I mean, he's a super confident dude. But in church, he's just kind of really low-key. But this Sunday, he decided, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to share my testimony of what God has been doing in my life. So he stands up, raises his hand. My pastor sees him like, okay, man, buddy never says much. Tell us your testimony. So he approaches the mic. He's like, man, I just want to, you know what I'm saying? I want to thank God for being faithful because uh, I was chilling with my girlfriend and we went out to eat, and then after that, I was like, let's go back to my crib. She was like, cool. So they go back to his crib. Then they start chilling. Then he said, you know what? Let's have Bible study. <laughs> She's like, all right, that's what's up. Golly man. He's like, matter of fact, just come to my room, and we could just have Bible study. So they did that. They went to his room, sitting on the edge of the bed, just going through the book of Romans. And they're going through the book of Romans. And they're just celebrating God, celebrating Jesus. Then he said, they prayed after that. And after that, the girl was like, okay, cool. And then she went home. So he's telling this during service. And everybody's kind of sitting there looking like you guys are like, okay, where is this going? He's like, that's it. God, he's a keeper. He's able to give you power over sin and temptation. He just like started emoting all of this praise of God's faithfulness. And the room was still kind of quiet, like, and they started a slow clap, like, <laughs> like, I think that's good. And then the pastor grabbed the mic and was like, amen, young man, but never do that again. <laughs> In Jesus' name. <laughs> but it's this confidence that we all have that thing is most natural for all of us because we get inside the faith and the Holy Spirit now moves inside of our lives and our hearts, our minds, and we all of a sudden desire to do good. We want to do right. But sometimes we don't know how to really engage that new desire, that sort of new identity or that new confidence, that new power. And this same thing is, a, is, is really illustrated well from the rich young ruler. Now just hang with me. This is all intro, so we're going somewhere. Rich young ruler, Matthew 19, verse 16 and following. It says, and behold, a man came up to him, to Jesus, saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me 
about what is good. There is only one who is good. In other words, Jesus is like, are you calling me that one person who is good? Are you acknowledging that I am the God man? If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So you ask a law question, guess what kind of answer Jesus is going to give you? A law answer. So he's asking, what must I do? Jesus is like, oh, you want to know on your own terms what you must do? Okay, we can take that approach. And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. There's that confidence. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you be perfect. Now he's kind of driving the stake in a little deeper. If you be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So he's hearing these law responses, these heavy truths. And what happens, what's, what does the law do? It crushes us. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Unfortunately, when the law was working on his heart and bringing him low, he did not respond in faith. He did not ask Jesus the right faith-led questions. And that's the unfortunate part. But as Christians in the room, by and large, I would say, right? You guys are all Christians. We have received this gift of faith. We have embraced by the Holy Spirit's power what Jesus has said which is you can't help yourself. You can't keep the law, right? James says if you break one law, you've broken them all. And the only way you can trick yourself into thinking you're keeping the laws is if you lower the standard. You got to take it from like an NBA-like style basketball hoop to a play school style. Then maybe you can dunk the ball and fly all over the room. <laughs> so you got to lower the standard to trick yourself into thinking you're actually keeping the law. So we need to understand, which was so helpful for me, this law-gospel distinction, right? So when God speaks to us, he speaks a word either of law, which is his good way, his good standard, what he expects, or he speaks a word of gospel, which is what he's done on our behalf. And when you exist in a space where those things are mingled and confusing, then damage happens to the devout person's conscience. And that's what we're talking about here. Let me read this quote. It says, you are not rightly distinguishing law and gospel in the word of God if you point sinners who have been struck down and terrified by the law toward their own prayers and struggles with God and tell them that they have to work their way into a state of grace. That is, do not tell them to keep on praying and struggling until they would feel that God has received them into grace. Rather, point them to the word and the sacraments. 
What we do is we point people to what Jesus has done outside of us, not to that inner confidence that sometimes gets thrown inside of sermons, thrown inside of Christian podcasts and Christian books and material where there's this mingling of law and gospel where you hear something that God demands and then you just determine, well, let me go hard after that better the next time. And then you begin to look to that for some sense of assurance or a reset button. And that's just part of this toxic trait that is in us because the old Adam, that old master, is still waging war with the new master within our hearts and our lives. And this is particularly relevant to me and to you, but here's how we all gonna connect on this. So one of my white friends and one of my black friends came to the same conclusion, it's funny. So I was talking to one of my white friends. He was telling me, man, he said, I got some people that have just left Christianity because they have determined that white people are the true Hebrews of the Old Testament. I said, okay, that's what's up. And then I got some black friends that said the same thing. Man, we are about to leave Christianity because we have found out that black Americans are the true Hebrews of the Old Testament. I said, wow, there seems to be this thing that the enemy is doing. And he's playing off of some inner confidence, but bringing people to a similar conclusion. And the conclusion is interesting because what you start to notice is there's this thing that happens when you go through some type of suffering. So obviously, both of these parties have located some type of societal or systemic issue. And what they've concluded is, we need God's favor. We need God's help. So they've located God as the solution in one sense, but in another sense, they've abandoned the good news altogether. Because if you step outside of the realm of what Jesus has accomplished, and you position yourself to be the true Hebrew people, meaning my goal is to live and perform the type of good deeds and works that God would see and recognize that eventually he would bring healing to our structural and societal ills. He'll begin to restore some type of identity and personhood and dignity within us both. Some separate plan apart from what Jesus has accomplished. And when you listen to people like Paul who claims and says, and it's true because the Holy Spirit had him write it, that Paul is a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, what does Paul do with his Hebrewness? He says, I count it as dumb. He says, I count it as nothing compared to Christ Jesus. So you start to see there's this war waged through suffering, which is my second point. There's this, this thing that the old Adam does through suffering, that when you receive some type of bad news or life brings you down low enough, we can sympathize with that, right? All of us understand the inconvenience of bad news and something happens in life and it sort of just discombobulates you. It breaks up the normal flow of things and you sort of are just all over the place looking for the horizon, where's up, where's down. And in that low place, there's a place underneath it Underneath that low place is this bitterness and this anger 
that starts to make you turn in on yourself. So at first there's this, this distance, this sort of wiggle room where you can suffer and, and grieve deeply and cry and lament before God and you can be confused. But if you hang out in that place for so long and you disconnect from the truths of the gospel and you're at the bottom and then underneath that bottom, the old Adam starts to whisper to your heart this law that the world is broken, that God is unfair, that he's mad at you, he's angry, he's judging you for some sin. And if you listen to that voice long enough, you may work the type of confidence to strike God himself. And that's another one of those sneaky things that happens to devout consciences is that in that suffering, they go even lower. Some people even leave the faith. I have friends who've left Christianity altogether. When we realize we are fragile creatures, always within seconds of dying and meeting the holy God of the universe, that law brings an existential anfektung. That's a word I learned in German. Sounds cool to say. It just means like this deep, dark depression, if you will. It brings that, that type of law, that that's the kind of world we live in. Only the gospel can address that. Only the good news of Jesus Christ can address that. And my next point is this. Another attack on the devout conscience is this resolve to be faithful. This resolve to give God your all. Now, it's tricky because being faithful to God is good and giving God your all to the best of your ability is a good aspiration. But I remember there was a time in my life where I was horrified, terrified by Matthew 7. Anybody ever heard Matthew 7? Where Jesus is, he's, you know, he's just these guys who were thinking that they could sort of trick God. And they're standing before the throne of heaven, we can imagine. And they say, haven't we preached in your name? Haven't we prophesied and done Christian rap and pastored and done all these cool things in your name? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. Now, the way I heard that passage expanded was an attack on devout consciences as well as not only myself, but many others who are just good Christians living in a world trying to be good neighbors. But when that passage is sort of couched as this looming threat that you're always underneath and that you could be doing as best you can, but then stand before God one day and he'll look at that fruit and say, mm, I don't know. When you were on that stage with that microphone, you were more concerned about your swag than my glory. We start getting into the weeds of those motivations and affections, and we start to redefine God's personality based on this other understanding of Matthew 7. And over time, that began to crush me, and I felt like, man, by way of personality, I'm a rule keeper. If the sign says, do not park here, it's for those who are disabled, I'm going to not park there. 
Somebody else might say, we're just only going to be here for two minutes. Just park there. It's not that big of a deal, Flame. But the way my mind is wired, once I see the rules, I'm going to attack those and try to keep them. So over time, just constantly trying to put myself in position to keep the rules and then always realizing I can't keep them to the extent that God demands. Then what does the old Adam come in and say? Well, you might not even be saved. Maybe Jesus didn't die for you. Maybe you're not one of the elect. Just go do your own thing. Live your own life. And I remember that attack on my mind happened. But then I was rescued by hearing the good news of Jesus Christ and what he had done for us. I remember hearing things like the gospel is built upon God's promise, not on his expectations from us. Let me read that again. The gospel, that's the good news of Jesus, what he has done, not the law, not God's standard and expectation, but this gift that he gives based upon what Jesus has done. The gospel is built upon God's promises, not on his expectations from us. I said, man, that sounds like good news. Then I heard another quote that says, God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. I said, oh, I like that. Give me more. They said, it's based on Psalm 51 where God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the earth and its fullness are mine. I said, wow, so I can't do anything for God? I can't give him enough moral performance that would so impress him? And the answer was no. The gospel is never a reward for our behavior change. The gospel is the message that we are loved by God and saved from our sin through what Jesus did on the cross for us and the promise to be rescued from this groaning creation by his resurrection. We do nothing. Christ has done it all. We do respond to the gospel in faith, but our rescue from the ultimate unfectum, I like saying that. The rescue from the ultimate depression struggles we have is purely by his grace. So when you resolve to be faithful and you say, I'm going to give God the best 50% I can give him. Because I don't want to hear, depart from me. Or I know I can't give my all, but I'm going to give him the best 50%. We end up looking to our performance, and we wouldn't articulate it that way, but we end up looking to our resolve, our ability to recalibrate and get serious again, as opposed to what Jesus accomplished on the cross and delivers through his word and his sacrament. Justification, rightly understood, illumines and magnifies the honor of Christ and brings the abundant consolation that devout consciences need. So my message is to devout consciences in a room, that we, that we would rest in Jesus' completed work, that we would realize that we are justified by faith, now, that faith is not a work on our part. It's not that the quality of our faith was so pure or that we saw better than other people and we really believed. 
But that faith, even if it's just a faith of a mustard seed, is a gift from God, and it's just a tool, a means whereby we lay hold of what Jesus has won for us on the cross. Now, the thing that was most helpful for me, and I want to be sensitive when I say this because I know it's a mixed audience, but I came up in a version of Christianity where the sacraments were there and they were important, um, important enough to where if a new person came into our space and proclaimed to be a Christian, they would be baptized. Um, the, the communion was, was, you know, celebrated, and I remember my pastor talking about the joy of what Jesus had won and done for us on the cross, so they were, they were definitely there and taken seriously. But the thing I found to be most helpful is when I was able to sort of pan out and step outside of my natural Christian context and to visit ancient Christianity and to see how the Holy Spirit has taught his church throughout the ages. 2,000 years of Christian history, and I had only really been exposed to maybe 400 years of that history. But when I was able to pan out and to see how the saints, after the closing of the New Testament, and those who nurtured our faith, those North African, Eastern, and European fathers and mothers who lived underneath word and sacrament, I was able to visit this other layer of sweetness and goodness that I didn't have access to because decisions were made for us as Christianity was handed down to this part of the world. But when I began to learn that God had already thought in advance to so hook us up with a multiplicity of expressions of love and hugs and care through his word and sacrament, so much so that the sacraments were not to be understood as a time in the service where we reflect on what God did a long time ago. Not a time where it's our chance to step outside of the crowd and to distinguish ourselves from others and to say, I'm ready to be baptized to prove that there's this inward change and I want to show it outwardly. Someone was able to walk me through the scriptures and say, if this is true, Flame, this is what's here. What you have is a sacrament of baptism that Jesus established, that he was so thinking about you that in 2 Peter, he talks about that this baptism gives you a good conscience. So that as you're living life and you're struggling as a saint and a sinner, that old Adam is still in you, Romans 7, trying to call you back to do the things that break God's heart, as you're living in that funk and that confusion of societal ills, political structure, and you're trying to figure out how you fit as a human being, and sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get angry, sometimes you get divisive, sometimes you may say a little too much on social media, all of that ebb and flow of what it means to be human. Jesus was thinking about us, and he says, this baptism gives you a good conscience. In the middle of that, so that you can know that I'm delivering, I'm doing the verbs, I'm baptizing you. It's this miracle happening in that moment that you can cling to, which is my visible word. Not only that, I'm not done. He says, I also have the Lord's Supper for you, where it's just not a time for you to reflect on what Jesus has done. Yes, do that, amen. But it's also this supernatural reality whereby Jesus visits us we would argue bodily, 
bringing and applying forgiveness of sin, immortality, making you one not only with God himself, but with one another. What a beautiful reality, even as we live among each other with differences, bickerings, different vantage points and views. But as a good father, he prioritizes our unity like any parent would with siblings who are bickering with one another. The good parents make sure they reconcile. The good parent prioritizes bringing them back together over and over and over and over again. Every time they offend one another from zero to death, a good parent says, but that's your sister, but that's your brother. Hug, hug, say I'm sorry. And at the Lord's Supper, my goodness, that is what Jesus has done. He not only unites us with himself, forgives us, but he binds us together across cultures, Eastern, Western, Midwest, South, up North, wherever. He binds us together, says, remember, that's your brother. Remember, that's your sister. I die for their sin too. They're just weird and broken in other ways in which you may not be, but you are in other areas. And he prioritizes all these gifts. And he says, I'm not done overwhelming you with grace. I got confession and absolution for you. Well, you don't have to hide being a sinner. You don't have to hide being broken and fragile and fragmented and disintegrated within yourself where you might want to stop doing this thing, but then there's this other reality in you that wants to keep doing it. And then you make a law for yourself. I'm not doing it again. This is my last time. And then you break your own laws. Jesus says, I want you to be able to get that outside of your head, outside of your body. Talk about it. Confess it. And then hear the forgiveness of sin. And you start to see these layers pile up. You start to see doctrines like election, not as this terrifying doctrine, but another layer of Jesus saying, not only all this stuff, I died on the cross, baptism, the Lord's Supper, confession, absolution, but also before eternity pass, some would say. Or just in my mind, I had you in it before you were even created. That's how much I love you. That's how much I'm in it for the long haul. And if that doesn't convince you, think about this. A lot of characters in the Old Testament live to be about 900-some years old. I think God is cool with about a good 60, 70 years, 80, 90 years of struggle with sin. I think he can handle it. He's seen 900 years of sinners trying to figure it out, and he's been gracious with them. So what you recognize is God is abundant in his mercy. He's abundant in his grace. He cares and he's demonstrated his love in Christ Jesus. And I pray that this discussion of Christianity is the one that we can move out into the world, to a world that is sort of over shame. Shame is kind of like an old idea that the grandparents once had. But people now relish in whatever they think is right. And as they encounter Christianity, may they encounter Christianity that can handle sinners, broken people, people that want their own way, but they could just stay underneath God's word of law that's giving them his good way, reminding them what's good, how to serve and love your neighbor, this function of the law that tells you, okay, this is what God likes, this is what he does not like. So, yeah. Try to align these ways, not just so you can impress me, but so you can be a good friend, a good spouse, a good employee, right? Paul says in Ephesians 4, let the thief no longer steal, but rather get a job. 
so that he can help those in need. Very practical stuff. Christianity is very regular. And Jesus is saying, that's why I want you to live out your holiness and your purity is in the context of those around you. Not just stowed away in your closet hoping to not look at one thigh. I'm not looking at any thighs today, God. I'm standing in the house all day. I'm not yelling at anybody in the traffic today, God. One of my friends told me, he said, Flame, I don't even go to the mall. I said, that's what's up. He said, because I don't even want to sin against God. I said, that's what's up. I said, your wardrobe is probably trash unless you order online. And he doesn't like online either, so what can we do? So anyway, in closing, that's my prayer. My prayer is that we will respond like the disciples, continuing on with the rich young man. Verse 23, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? That's what the rich young man should have been asking. But he's asking, well, which laws do I have to keep? He's trying to finesse God. This hierarchy. What's the, what's the big sins? I can fight those. But the best question is, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And the impossible was accomplished, is accomplished, and continues to be accomplished by Jesus, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, the high priest who can sympathize with all of our sufferings. And in fact, in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He applies that forgiveness regular. May we continue to love on him as we have first been loved by him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Yes. Okay. Can I do some music? All right, let's do some music. So I'm going to move this right here. Now, don't be afraid to stand up as you prepare for hip-hop expression of music. All right? So I'm going to do a few songs, and uh, we're just going to have a good time. So if you want to stand, stand. If you don't, no pressure. If you want to come into this space, you're welcome. If you don't, no pressure. All right? So this first song right here, pardon me if this strikes someone the wrong way, is titled Scattered Tulips. Uh, I still love you. You're still my brother in Christ. Um, but this is just my journey being unpacked in music. Let's see if we can get into it. Shout out to my DJ. How are you doing, my DJ? Make some noise for my DJ. She's. <laughs> All right, let's see, if we can, let's see if we can do scatter tulips. Can we try scatter tulips? Run that track. Let's see if we can do it. We good? All right, let's see. Maybe not. That's cool, because I can still do the song. Are we thumbs up? Are we, how are we? We good? All right, well. I see scattered tulips. Come with me, I show you what I found. There we go. I just had to stir up the sounds here. There we go. Okay, cool. Now, at a rap concert, it's customary to just do your hands like this. 
Hollin' hallelujah, God, it came in the nick of time. Calvinism was sublime, rescue me from my decline. Picture painted God, scripture get prioritized. Plus it fit my introverted, nerdy, burden, quirky side. Swayed by the Bible, Mr. John. Sold his exegesis from Geneva, Switzerland. Crazy though, you put what you know to the fire. Testing systematics with other erudite paradigm. You find great men who know Greek, Hebrew too. Great women, well learned outside of your group. Strong pillars that used to stand, start to fall. Now you digging through the rubble, struggle to rebuild the walls. Hold up. Hey, I see scattered tulips like this, y'all. Come with me, I'll show you what I found. I'll be digging in the text. Yes, funny what you find when you low to the ground. Woo! I see scattered tulips. Hey, come with me, I'll show you what I found. Hey, I'll be digging in the text. Yes, funny what you find. Hollin', I can't take it, God, nah, I need some peace of mind. Tulip scene on the ground, they isolated Romans 9. Used to seem like the biggest thing at the time, God's sovereignty. Really shrinking God down in size, I'm predestined, right? Let's assume I'm one of the elect at a low point. Life a mess in the flesh, where you find me at? Introspecting, trying to check, looking deep within myself, trying my best to obsess. Genuine, am I regenerate? Better yet, ever really with him? Did he hit me with Matthew 7? Let's be clear, we justify by faith. Maybe Mr. Calvin, that sanctification out of place. I don't know. I see scattered Tola's hands up like this in the building. Come with me, I'll show you. You're gonna get a good, you can switch hands too. Get a good work out of both hands. Yeah, there you go. Hey, hey, yes. I see scattered Tola's. Uh, come with me, I'll show you what I found. I'll be digging in the text. Yes. Funny what you find when you low to the ground. Make some noise in the building. Yes. This next song is titled Christ for You. Because that's what Jesus says in the supper. That this is for you. When we receive the Lord's Supper where I'm in my parts. They say your name. This is for you. This is Christ for you. My given name. Marcus Gray. There's this personal touch Jesus wants us to know when we receive the supper. So this song right here, I'm going to talk about that. Can we get into that? Christ for you? Let's try it out. Let's do it. You can run that track for me, DJ. Can I get a little more music in the, in the, in the stage wedges? Thank you, my friend. Yes. Brody say he hurt, he popped an extra dose. Disillusioned by the church, he say he heck a ghost. He say the Western church tastes that heck of gross. I say before you go, check that extra nose. You searching, you searching, you searching for something that's more than a metaphor. Something that you can experience that's deeper than what you've been hearing is. A supper that he instituted. Along the way it got polluted. But when the church was persecuted, they clung to it and ain't lose it. They found our identity, not their ethnicity, but in something that was rooted. In the promise that he made to him, in the elements he gave to him, and he said that he would save through him. Give us life and forgave through him. Make us one with God the Son, with bread and wine as the conduit. Y'all know. Hey, yeah. When I'm coming down, woo, as I come around, it's for you. Lord, supper, bread and wine, it's for you. Woo. I know you my name. Yes. When I'm coming down, yes. As I come around, it's for you. Woo. Lord, supper, yeah. What you looking for, yeah, it's outside of us. They say, how you keep the faith? I say, he promised us. Immortality is ours, it's supplied to us. 
Every time we eat his flesh and drink his blood. Go look it up, look it up, look it up. Ooh, that's so good he had to hook it up. Ooh, cause the conscience gets shook up. Ooh, now we don't work trying to cook it up. Yo, Jesus, he made it a pledge, cause he knew we get stuck in our heads. So he gave us a seal filled with a mystery. He in the midst of the bread. Underending with the bread, underending with the wine. Bodily, not his universal promise. He bring it down and I make it mine. So when we struggle with doubt, we do not look to our fruit or our purity that will not bring security. It's the something he instituted that'll cure me. Hey, I know you by name. Yes. Let's go this way. When I'm coming through. Yeah. We're going to work the abs. We're going to work the side abs right here. Yeah, there you go. Hey. Hey. Yes. I know you by name. Yes. When I'm coming down. Woo. As I come around, it's for you. Lord, supper, bread, and wine is for you. Make some noise one more time, y'all. Chill. Okay, can I do one more song? Okay, cool, cool, cool. So this next song is called Why Wait, right? Jesus said this by way of Ananias to Paul. He says, you've seen me. The scales have been removed. Why wait? Be baptized. Be washed. So it washes away your sin, he says. So the hook says, why wait? Why wait? And I need you to say, say, uh-huh. Why wait? Why wait? Uh-huh. Why wait? Be baptized. Uh-huh. Why wait? Why wait? Why wait? Be baptized. Beautiful. Let's get into the why wait. I think they ready. Run that track, man. Lovely DJ. Yes. Okay. Why wait? Why wait? Uh, why wait? Be baptized. Uh, why wait? Why wait? Uh, why wait? Be baptized. Saul was all on the road, on a Damascus road, persecuting was a goon. Scripture said it was about noon, then the light of heaven shone. Why do you persecute me? Lord, I don't even know who you be. Yeah, the one you're persecuting. I am Jesus the Nazarene. Then he said, what should I do? Jesus spoke, rise up and go. Into Damascus you will be told. When you get there, what you're supposed to do? Light too bright, got blinded. By his hand, I got it. Then met Ananias, devout man still by him. What'd he say? What'd he say? Paul received your sight. Scales run from his eyes. Spirit filled his life. Why wait be baptized? Scripture tells us why. It washes away your sins, not just symbolize. Why wait? Why wait? Uh, why wait? Be baptized. Uh, why wait? Why wait? Uh, why wait? Be baptized. I see you. Why wait? Why wait? Sound people. Yeah. Why wait? Be baptized. Okay. Take a minute, read the scriptures on baptism without your presuppositions. And the washings in the Old Testament like Naaman washed in the Jordan River. Don't forget the Levitical priestly washings and Ezekiel's vision. Get the picture from the scripture that baptism is now the fulfillment. Sometimes water drowns. God uses it to judge. Sometimes water saves. Think of Noah's flood in the boat. Boat was floating, window opened, and Noah sent out a dove. Second time the dove came in and her mouth was an olive freshly plucked. Peter said they were saved through the water. Israel was saved through the water. Moses split the Red Sea, judged some and made sons and daughters. It's by faith, it's not magic. Don't have faith, you can't access forgiveness if you resist, and that's it. But if this repentance is happening by the Spirit, then I'm asking, why wait? Why wait? Uh, why wait? Be baptized. Huh. Why wait? Why wait? Uh, why wait? Be baptized. Uh, why wait? 
That's my time. I love y'all dearly. I'll see you in the back. God's peace.